Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Hannah Fox and Gideon Obazanek are the co-artistic directors of Rising, Melbourne's Winter Festival, which has, it is safe to say, a chequered history today. The 2020 festival cancelled because of a pandemic. 2021 festival opened for one night only, heartbreakingly had to close because of lockdown. So this year, I suspect you're both ready to, what, celebrate, delight and showcase, hopefully, Hannah, a really remarkable and lively array of contemporary works. That's right. Hi, Richard. How are you going? Um, yeah, I look, I think myself, Gideon, our team, the artists and Melbourne are well and truly ready for a payoff after a huge amount of work. And the program is so diverse. And, uh, you know, I was saying just before we came on air that we're, you know, always casting ahead and we're now working on future years. And it's been actually great to come back to this year's program and just get excited about it all over again. Gideon, what makes Rising different to, say, uh, I don't know, Sydney Festival, Brisbane Festival, Adelaide Festival, Perth Festival, or even the previous Melbourne Festival, which Rising has evolved from? It, it, it is very much a festival of place, uh, and there are things uh, in, in the program, in the festival, that couldn't happen anywhere else but Melbourne. And it really is a celebration of Melbourne's unique night culture in winter, and we're one of the only major cities in the, on the mainland that actually has a genuine winter. Uh, and so we're leaning right into that as well. Talk to us a little bit more about that sense of place that you've focused on, uh, partially in terms of what have you responded to and then how have you responded to that artistically and creatively? I think um, one of the kind of things that will define us are those performances that really respond to the moment as well as place. And I think a good example of that would be Still Lives, which is one of the many projects that we commissioned through A Call to Artists when we repurposed the 2020 festival funds towards a commissioning program. And that's a work by Daniel Cock and Luke George uh, where they're taking the idea of... um, I guess the the push and pull between the AFL, Australian Rules Football, um, and Australian culture and social change and looking at how those two things influence each other. And the way they're doing that is by suspending five retired AFL players in rope bondage from the ceiling of the Great Hall in the NGV in the form of an iconic mark um, from the game's history. So to me, that's the point of festivals. It is talking about... Uh, kind of deep social issues in a way that is um, spectacular, accessible, interesting and couldn't be more relevant to this moment and place. And that work in itself is something that just feels so distinctively Melbourne, not only because of the, the AFL reference, which we know is played in other capital cities, but talking to friends in Sydney in the arts community, there feels like in Sydney there's a divide, a really deep divide between art and sport, perhaps because of the, the violent nature of rugby historically, for mm. example. Whereas here in Melbourne, that divide between art and sport doesn't exist. There's the AFL art mafia who go out and kind of see shows and then tweet about them and then the next minute they're tweeting about a concert they just attended or something like that. So seeing that work and seeing it in the NGV is a really fascinating fusion of, of 
what makes Melbourne distinct. That's right. And there's a, you know, there's a really long history of Australian rules football you know, in in Melbourne, of course, more than half the AF, or half the AFL is is based in is still based in Melbourne, and um, it has been uh, you know since the gold rush uh, has been a real cultural hub um, of Australia and continues to be. So we're really kind of bringing that uh, into place. But also there are works like um, the Return that we're we're collaborating with and co-commissioning uh, with the Malt House with Jason Tamaru and John Harvey that looks at 250 years. Um, an epic tale about people's remains being taken, being stolen essentially, um, and the process of repatriation and return and the complexities of that. Um, and it's really an extraordinary play. It's really an extraordinary story to tell um, that is not necessarily just part of Melbourne but part of this country's um, you know, deep story. I'm looking forward to chatting to Jason about that in a, a week or two on this particular program, so we'll get to explore that in more detail. One of the challenges for any arts festival is to expand its audience beyond the the kind of the so-called arts literate who are regular attendees at, at galleries or museums or theatres or concert halls. How is Rising trying to reach out to broader audiences? And I'm thinking, for example, people last year may have seen the, the giant skeleton of an eel snaking down the river, for example, and heard the, the, the work that surrounded that at dusk and dawn, for example, which is a great way to show people and tell people that the festival is on and to invite them in. Is there something equivalent this year? Yeah, we always think about, I guess, multiple doorways into the program and those big beacon works that signal to the whole city that a festival is happening are crucially important um, for that message. And this year we're working with Robin Fox uh, to create a huge-scale uh, installation of laser and sound composition along the Birrung River. It's uh, over a kilometre long, going from Immigration Bridge to Birrung Ma and intersecting at Princess Bridge. And he's really working with that kind of visualisation of his compositions with these incredibly powerful lasers um, that haven't been used in Victoria before in a public space. And they're they're just, uh, you, you literally can't believe your eyes. <laughs> so that will be a very important beacon. But the way we kind of think about the program is is having, you know, that uh, kind of root system, I guess, that's really connected to Melbourne and its multitude of communities. Uh, the trunk that is like the, you know, really solid content, you know, really quality shows. And then the the canopy, which is that kind of beacon work that lets everybody know that the festival is happening. Yeah, and the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl plays a really important role in regards to that. The Wilds, which did begin last year, um, didn't have much of a run, and so we, um, we're, we're redoing it. But actually all the content is really changed around. Um, there's some really great artists involved in that. Um, Tin and Ed, who were originally based here in Melbourne but now live in New York, and Leroy New from the Philippines, um, who are coming to really transform that space. And, and the transformation of that is not is, is really from a gig space or a major concert venue, but in winter it's really an experiential um, uh, space and it's really low cost. Um, it really is like a, I would describe it as a kind of a psychedelic art park um, in, in a way. And it's it combines food, it combines participation, it combines performance. And I, I think it, in that way it, it is a place where There'd be probably many people in Melbourne who wouldn't necessarily feel that the theatre, uh, the gallery, the concert hall is necessarily the, the place that they frequent, um, but it's really bringing in you know, really great work into, into that environment. 
In terms of the wilds, uh, I wanted to ask, how has the rise of Instagram and Instagram culture shaped programming at arts festivals? Is that something you are consciously responding to by thinking we need some kind of visual spectacular that people can wander amongst an Instagram wildly to help spread the message like in a a form of free publicity or marketing that is public-driven rather than being paid for and organised by the festival? Um, it didn't come from that place as an intention. It it came from the place of wanting to um, have something festive within the festival, a, a social space, um, and the idea that, uh, you know, artwork with great integrity and accessibility don't have to be mutually exclusive and that we really want to figure out a way to position, you know, quite some major artists working in a space that is actually, um, you know, can be discovered as opposed to having to have prior knowledge in order to enjoy it or get something out of it. Um, So that's where it kind of began. It was also a bit inspired by um, lockdowns, actually, from, you know, endlessly wandering the Merry Creek Trail. Um, (laughs) became sort of a bit, uh, I guess, um, inspired by this uh, nightclub scene that was emerging on the Merry Creek Trail (laughs) in terms of people really dressing up and promenading and getting out into nature. And that's sort of where it began, that we're thinking about winter in Melbourne. You know, you want to be on the move. You want to be actually in this kind of processional form. If taking people into the bowl to stand still and watch something for an hour and a half is not going to be a pleasant experience. So those were kind of the building blocks of the wilds. And it's now built into this very eccentric event at scale. You know, there's roving um, groups of dance ensembles, there's a 200-voice choir, there's an ice rink, there's robotic inflatable sculptures. Like, it's quite mad when you unpack it and it's a bit... There's a bit more going on than... um, what will be Instagrammed. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the fact that it's leaning into the idea of Melbourne in winter by having an ice skating rink. Well, yeah, and it's not actually something new, you know. I don't know if you remember, Richard, but, you know, the the ice skating rink at the City Mile Music Bowl was established in the late 80s and into the mid-90s, and um, it was a hugely popular event for, you know, admittedly older people now, um, remembering back. But um, I imagine sorely missed, and I think um, a whole lot of uh, families and, you know, and adults and alike will will get much pleasure out of it. Now, uh, also one of these events, which will, I guess, encourage people to see an area of Melbourne they may know already, but in a different light. Uh, and I've been getting emails from friends saying, oh, my God, we totally have to book to this and go. You're doing something with a car park in Chinatown. That's right. Um, Chinatown's always been interesting of interest to us. I think we feel it's got a lot of natural atmosphere and we're looking for spaces in Melbourne with existing culture and how to kind of augment and amplify that. And Melbourne's Chinatown is one of the oldest Chinatowns in the West. So it's, you know, got a really rich history of late night culture and this kind of intersection of all sorts of cultures coming together to dine and hang out and have festivals and, and that sort of thing. So we're putting in an uh, event called Golden Square in the Golden Square car park, which is a multi-storey, quite beautiful um, anomaly. You know, it's this older car park sitting right in the middle of the city. Uh, and that will be um, a collection of video installations of performance works, durational performance works that will go all night. Uh, there's a parade created by Jason Fu, which will snake throughout the uh, car park each night. Um, Scotty So, who's an incredible performer, will be doing little 
have um, drag and performance vignettes throughout the staircases of the car park. And then on the rooftop, uh, we're putting in a, a kind of bar and lounge area, and that overlooks a whole bunch of major um, video work. So it has a sort of Blade Runner-esque feel, I think, once you get to the rooftop. There's so much in the program to unpack and explore. And if you've just tuned in, we're chatting about rising uh, and... Uh, we'll be. I'll give all the details shortly, but the main thing to think about is that tickets are on sale now and the festival runs from the 1st to the 12th of June. Gideon, one of the works I'm really excited to see is uh, Stephanie Lake Company's Manifesto. Steph has been making fascinating, kind of compelling dance works of scale, uh, and this is a work I know that from memory it's one of the few works that all of the major festivals have basically said, yeah, we want that, we will support that. Usually I know there's a bit of a round table with the festivals getting together and they go, maybe two festivals might want to support something. In this case, it feels like everybody's gone, yes, we're excited to see what Steph will do next. Yeah, this has been a really great story. Um, Steph and us got together the minute we got the, the gig back in, uh, I think, at the end of 2019 and started speaking about ideas and she brought forward this work. We took it to the major festivals initiative, which is the, which is the major festivals around Australia, um, they all really embraced the idea, and it really was just an idea in that, at that time. And she created Colossus, uh, I think probably about a couple of years ago, almost with 50 dancers. It was just pre-COVID. Um, it was an extraordinary outcome, the ability to fuse um, movement, lighting and sound in such a remarkable way. And that was really taking off kind of really around the world. Then COVID hit and everything came to a grinding halt. And in the background... Um, Manifesto was kind of in the in the planning, and it's been put together in a warehouse um, in Brunswick, and we've gone and seen multiple rehearsals, um, and it's just really stunning. Uh, the nine drummers uh, from around Melbourne who are creating the music with Robin Fox, uh, nine dancers from all around Australia, it really is a remarkable piece, and um, it is currently sold out. We are trying to find uh, ways of, of putting on more shows and releasing more tickets, but... Um, there's plenty of other interesting dance works um, also in the program. Yeah. What's also interesting about the program is that uh, in the last couple of years when Australian festivals have happened, they've had very much a, a hyper-local focus. Borders are open again. You can bring in international artists and international guests. Yeah, that's so exciting. I think um, particularly in music uh, this time around, we've got a, a really strong international program. It's around, it's around about 80% international, I think, the music program across 28 shows that Woody McDonald, your your very own, has curated. Uh, and one of the things he's been focusing on uh, is a kind of thread of the program called Japan in Focus, um, which is looking at this kind of connection between Tokyo and Melbourne um, and artists that have done all sorts of work, you know, across those two places. Um, so we're bringing in Midori Takada, uh, Boris um, Chai and Buffalo Daughter, who are all playing across multiple nights. And the other um, part of a music program, which I'm particularly excited about, is Jim White in residence. Um, Jim White of the Dirty Three, one of the best drummers in the world, I think you could easily say. Um, is bringing a whole lot of different collaborations of his um, to to Melbourne. And one of them is with Joe Lloyd um, in the State Library, which is a free event. Um, 
it, they'll be making a huge racket in a traditionally quiet space <laughs> in the reading room. And um, I'm really excited for that. It's Joe working with five five dancers. Is that right, Gid? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think yeah. it's, it's up to it's up to five dancers, and it's it's really. Um, you know, an organised chaos, um, in the, and and some really beautiful work uh, with Joe Lloyd in, in the reading room, and it's and back to you know what festivals are about. This meeting of two artists of different art forms of, of dance and music coming together just for one night for this, um, yeah, organised, um, almost organised semi-improvisational wildness. Um, in an iconic space in Melbourne that wouldn't otherwise happen is something that um, yeah, we're very excited about. I'm also excited to see the latest work by Marigeku, who are such a fascinating company, based uh, up in Broome, cross-cultural work, kind of rich and compelling performances. Tell us a little bit about their new work. Well, Jurungu Nanga is, again, a piece that began quite a while ago, um, and it uh, it co-ops an incredible cast from all around Australia and a very diverse cast as well. Um, it's based on discussions uh, with um, oh, Patrick Dodson, um, Baruz Bakani, the asylum or ex-asylum seeker, I should say, um, and mainly it centres around the idea of um, incarceration in Australia and the um, unequal incarceration and the predominantly um, incarceration of first people. Um, in the north, but also in the south and, and everywhere, in, in a way. Um, having said that, and, and while it's not shy and completely unflinching with its message, it's also quite an incredibly beautiful work. Um, the choreography is stunning, um, the design, um, the music. And so it's a very moving piece, and we're partnering with Arts House uh, to put that on, and that'll run the complete run of the, of the two-week festival. There's so much more in the program I, I want to talk about. I'm hopefully going to be uh, chatting with uh, a few of the, the people behind uh, and responsible for uh, Dorian Gray in a couple of weeks' time, which I flew up to Sydney to see a few weeks ago because it, uh, uh, and technical dramas meant that I only saw about 40 minutes of the show. So oh. can, like, it's given me such a hunger to see it uh, oh. in its entirety when it comes to Melbourne. But there's other shows that I'm equally kind of really anticipating uh, Nat Randall and Anna Brecken's set piece being one of them. Yeah, set piece uh, is is a beautiful work. Um, we were commissioners of that work um, a while back. It's taken a little while to come together because of COVID mainly, but um, it's a really stunning outcome. Uh, you may know Nat Randall and Anna Bracken from The Second Woman, uh, a piece they did a number of years ago which premiered in Melbourne and has consequently toured around the country and around the world. Um, this is their second uh, kind of large-scale stage work. And, um, again, it's using uh, film tropes and, and cameras, literally, to be able to see the details within a, a kind of a, a parlour drama. Um, it is a kind of a contemporary who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in a sense that there are two couples, a younger and an older couple, who meet. But this time it's, it's two lesbian couples... Um, for an arranged night of sex fueled by ketamine and alcohol. And it's kind of hilarious and tragic and intense uh, and pretty saucy. There's so much more I want to talk about, but Hannah, is there an aspect of the program that is particularly close to your heart that we haven't discussed yet? 
Uh, I think the main thing I would like to say to anyone listening is that the way, the best way I think to approach this program is to try and fit in multiple things in a night because there are 225 events and 800 artists involved. Um, And Patricia Piccinini at Flinders Street Station, Golden Square, uh, the exhibition in Chinatown, the Wilds at Sydney Maya Music Bowl and Robin Fox's Monochord are all things that you can fit in around shows and uh, Golden Square in the Wilds also you can eat and drink there. So um, I would just encourage people to, to to try and look at it as a as multiple nights out or a whole night out rather than just uh, getting to see a show and going home. Gideon, anything to add? Um, I, I would absolutely agree. It, it is it is an opportunity to really um, uh, traverse the city. I would say um, to begin at sunset um, and uh, and to end up you know late at night, and you can see multiple things. Um, I would add uh, as a, as, a sh- as an interesting show, multitude. Uh, by Tamara Cubas from from Uruguay, uh, collaborating with seventy participants in Melbourne at the Melbourne Town Hall is really an extraordinary um, large scale event. As is Heavy Congress, I would say, um, at the Forum, it, it, one of those works that we commissioned a while ago and is coming to fruition now um, with with community groups with sound systems from around Melbourne. So these are like massive events um, that are very unique to, to, to Rising. I might just add with Heavy, heavy Congress that um, although we're sold out of pre-sales, there will be a lot of door sales for that. It flew out the door, but uh, it is an event that goes from 4.20pm, which some people will understand, <laughs> through to midnight. So uh, there will be door sales throughout the day. So check it out. So much more to explore in Rising. Jump online, rising.melbourne, to explore the program. The festival is running from the 1st to the 12th of June. I'm really looking forward to diving in and just finding new ideas and new aspects and artists whose work I've never seen before, as well as uh, delighting in the work of artists who I know and respect. I've been chatting with the festival's co-artistic directors, Hannah Fox and Gideon Obazanek. Thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks so much. Thank you. Triple R. The Venice Biennale, it's the the kind of biggest event, I think, in the world of visual arts. I'm joined in the studio by Natalie King, who's the curator for the New Zealand Pavilion at this year's Venice Biennale. Natalie, why is this particular art event so significant. It, it, it feels like it's the, I don't know, the, the Woodstock of the art world in terms of reputation and people saying, oh, I was there. Uh, and every year it seems to grow in significance. But why? Why is it more significant than, I don't know, equivalent art fairs elsewhere? Well, good morning, Richard, and thank you so much for having me on your program. It's terrific to see you live in studio. Look, The Venice Biennale is the oldest Biennale in the world. It was established in 1895 in the Lagoon City of Venice and over 90 countries participate across the entire city from parks to palazzos to warehouses. Um, New Zealand has been participating since 2001 and I had the enormous privilege this year of working alongside Yuki Kihara as her curator. She is the first Pacifica, um, Indigenous and transgender or fa'afafina artist to represent New Zealand at the Venice Biennale. So this in, in itself was a triumph. It's also the first Venice Biennale uh, or during the COVID 
um, scenario and it was delayed by one year. So in many ways a miracle that pavilions were able to realise um, their projects and there was certainly a swell of audiences. Um, the Venice Biennale is typically on for about seven months. This one goes until the 27th of November. So it is a long exhibition cycle and numbers peak to around 600,000 audiences. So it's really hugely well attended and we were lucky to have up to 4,000 people a day into our pavilion which was uh, very centrally located in the Arsenale where we coexisted alongside many other pavilions. The sheer numbers who attend uh, must mean then that for any artist who is chosen to represent their country that this is going to be a huge boost to their career because it means that not just members of the public are seeing their work but curators from around the world, uh, collectors from around the world uh, and presumably editors, journalists and others as well who can uh, will be in six months or a year's time going, let's put them on the cover. Absolutely. It's probably an, um, an apex for an artist's career. I know when I curated Tracy Moffat in 2017 for the Australian Pavilion, there was enormous sort of renewed throng of interest. And this time with Yuki Kihara, um, I've just returned from Venice, so excuse me if I'm in a bit of a jet-lagged haze. It's been a long time since I've experienced jet lag. But we had, um, we got coverage in CNN, the art newspaper, Art Agenda, um, Tilda Swinton came to visit. She was so moved by Yuki's work that she actually um, hugged her. Yuki's work deals with some of the most urgent issues of our times, looking at decolonisation, intersectionality and climate crisis, but told through a very poignant and poetic lens. Um, and what she does in the project is she upcycles or repurposes select paintings by Paul Gauguin, produced while he was in the Marquesas and Tahiti from 1891 to 1903, and re recasts these images with members of her own community, the Fafafina community, which I guess is a daring and courageous way of you know, reclaiming the white male heteronormative gaze, which I heard Ty talking about earlier this morning. And audiences have really um, relished the experience. Um, we use wallpaper in our pavilion. The walls are five metres um, high. Against um, the photographs is a backdrop of an oceanscape. And this is typically how Samoa, where Yuki is based, is depicted but the oceanscape also is the place where there is acute um, sea level rising of up to four millimetres and where there was a catastrophic tsunami in 2009. So there are all these um, quite magical interplays in Yuki's work. And it was a miracle that we actually got there. It was only three weeks prior to arrival that we received confirmation from the New Zealand government that we had approval to travel. So... It was a relief, but also really thrilling to be able to greet uh, so many audiences and do our press launch in Venice. Looking at some of Yuki's work, uh, vibrant, colourful, but also subversive, as you say, taking these classic works from uh, of 
Paul Gauguin's from the, the, the Western art canon and reinterpreting them to remove the, 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 the I don't know, there's a, a slightly nasty taste in some of them that implies sex tourism, for example, or uh, kind of the, the objectification or, and othering of bodies. And here there is no sense of that. There is a sense of reclamation of celebration. Absolutely. So reclamation and subversion are exactly the words that Yuki uses in relation to her work. And in 2008, Yuki had a solo acquisitive exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, where she saw for the first time at dawn before visitors entered the museum works by Paul Gauguin. And looking at these works, she started to wonder, could there be a Samoan influence? And more so, could some of the subjects or sitters be fa'afafine? And in that case, could this be an early form of queer history? So she um, does extensive research and she, in fact, found some uh, photographs of Samoans in Gauguin, Paul Gauguin's Noah Noah journal and started to trace these links. And um, it took eight years for Yuki to develop this project because it was it was elaborately shot on location in Samoa on Upolo Island with uh, up to 100 people, including cast and crew. Yuki works like a cinematographer on location, working at, in front of waterfalls, plantations, villages. And I was super lucky to go to Samoa in March 2020, just prior to lockdown, and be an observer at the photo shoot, getting up at dawn, catching very beautiful, delicate light, where Yuki um, shot these um, photographs with the Fafafina community, many of whom have never heard of Gauguin and have actually never heard of the Venice Biennale. So Yuki repeatedly says that while she's um, honoured to be representing New Zealand at the Venice Biennale, the works are primarily for her community and for the third gender community in Samoa, where we hope that the exhibition will travel back to next year sometime. You mentioned earlier that you've curated the Australian Pavilion uh, in the past as well as the New Zealand Pavilion this year. That feels quite rare in the world of, of the visual arts. Yeah, it is. I mean... Linda Michael curated two Australian pavilions. She curated Patricia Piccinini and Fiona Hall. But as far as I know, no Australian curator has curated two different pavilions, two different national pavilions with only one in between. So um, it's unremitting but also completely exhilarating to work alongside an artist and present their work at such a, um, you know, optimum opportunity for both the artists and the curator and also so that audiences access their work and as you said before you know we had Francis Morris the director of the Tate came to visit um, as I mentioned Tilda Swinton critics writers and also many members of the trans community came and they were deeply moved by Yuki's work so I think the the access is really crucial and Oh, there's a lot of debate about the relevance of biennales, but they still are a place where artists can show their work to really vast audiences and come together side by side. And another initiative that Yuki um, set up is the first Solidarity uh, Pavilion Network because 
in my experience with Tracy Moffat, you rarely meet anyone from other pavilions. It's quite a competitive environment. It's known as the Olympics of the art world. You're very focused on delivering your own pavilion under quite constrained conditions in a city like Venice that's on water, bringing your crates in on a barge with um, forklifts and it's a very complicated environment to work in. And so there isn't very much um, resourcing or camaraderie across pavilions, surprisingly, that really surprised me. So I mentioned this to Yuki and she said, well, I'm going to do something about that. So what she did is brought together pavilions who were there who were there in Venice for the first time. So UK has the first um, Algerian woman, uh, the bl- first black woman representing the UK. Um, Poland has the first Romani artist. Nepal is in Venice for the first time. Singapore has the first two women. So there's a network that we've developed where... You know, we were over Zoom and we were asking, you know, how are you managing your freight and are you printing your catalogue in Venice and will you have room brochures and some very practical um, discussions but also offering support as we all headed towards the sort of chaotic and sometimes perilous delivery phase of our projects so that we could actually share information and, you know, share our scissor lift. So we shared our scissor lift with Albania um, who's also part of the uh, the network? Which is to hear that there is that the opportunity to create a more collegiate atmosphere is really significant, and I think, and it perhaps it's telling that uh, uh, an artist who comes from a marginalised community is the one to to do that to create uh, more of a sense of cultural safety, perhaps as well amongst kind of some of the other uh, artists representing marginalised communities, such as uh, the Romani. The, the the fact that the organisers haven't thought to do that. It, the onus is sadly on, on an artist to do that. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. And I guess it takes an artist like Yuki, whose practice is socially engaged, who works very closely with her community, to use those, I guess, specific methodologies of working in a collegiate way and bring that to Venice. So I guess that's another more behind-the-scenes triumph. And so what we did is we had a gathering one week prior to the opening in Vernissage at Ocean Space where um, the artists and curators from the network and others came together and that was the first time that many of us had met live where we could share pizza and beer and have some downtime together before we headed into the really hectic um, Vernissage press preview phase. Um, so it was... Um, you know, it's a really great experience and we're planning some other um, gatherings or activities most likely online during the seven-month phase of the Biennale because it's only just opened and so how can we um, work together and continue dialogue with our our neighbouring pavilions. And that notion of dialogue too, as you say, reflected in Yuki's work by the, you mentioned members of the trans community coming to view the work and kind of their positive responses to it. Again, particularly in a time when uh, trans and gender diverse people are being attacked um, uh, through through law, through media, through politicians spouting hateful and uh, and unnecessary rhetoric, to have an artist kind of offer um, a healing and positive alternative is really significant. 
I think also what, what we're finding is this current Biennale is a real trailblazer because the curated section is curated by the first Italian woman, Cecilia Alamani, and the majority of artists are women or gender non-conforming. So in the Giardini, which is one of the main venues of her curated exhibition, there are, in fact, no male artists. And so she's looking at artists who are overlooked and many of the female artists are working with textiles, embroidery. Uh, there are Sami artists in the exhibition, artists working with um, more traditional sculptural forms. And I think audience, there's just a throng of audiences very much enjoying this, I guess, counter-narrative to what we would often see in the Biennale network. The other thing that she's cleverly done is... Um, her title is called The Milk of Dreams, which is from a Leonora Carrington uh, children's fable. And um, she has delved into s overlooked surrealist histories. And there are these series of capsules or historical, I guess, vignettes within the exhibition where there'll be a, a, a room with a very rare surrealist works by Leonora Carrington um, and other artists who we've almost never heard of. So it's um, quite a historical um, reappraisal of the role of women and gender non-conforming artists in the Biennale, which, of course, is the perfect context for someone like Yuki presenting her work at this 59th Venice Biennale. The Venice Biennale is on now until the 27th of November. Uh, you can jump online, dub, dub, dub org to check out more details and Yuki's exhibition curated by Natalie King uh, Paradise Camp uh, is the work available online for people to view? Yes, you can go to the New Zealand at Venice website and like many pavilions we have developed a whole series of uh, digital assets uh, which Yuki of course scripted and directed and you can uh, see her narrating different parts of her project. So there is a full online kind of digital experience that we're, we're very proud of. Uh, and that website, uh, New Zealand at Venice, is www.nzatvenice.com. I've been chatting with Natalie King. Natalie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio. Thank you for joining us, and uh, I hope the jet lag eases as quickly as possible. Thank you so much, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. If you've wandered through the CBD lately, uh, you may have noticed big photos popping up all over the place. Uh, and they're not just in the CBD. They're in a range of locations, including uh, Fitzroy and Collingwood, for example. And there's exhibitions associated with this project throughout uh, regional Victoria as well. It's an event called Photo 2022. It's an international festival of photography. And uh, joining us in the studio to tell us more is the festival's artistic director, Elias Redstone. Elias, thank you so much for coming in. Good morning, Richard. Thanks for having me Absolute pleasure. Now, why have an international festival of photography? We live in a photo-saturated world where people surely want to escape the kind of uh, the photographic image rather than dive into it. 
Well, it's really a moment for people to actually pause and think about the role photography plays in their lives. It is omnipresent. We are bombarded with the images every day. But this is a chance to look at the world through the lens of artists and photographers and see how it's, you know, it's implicit in the way we, we, we understand the world around us. At the same time, it's a great opportunity to really forefront photography as an incredibly important visual art um, and really celebrate that and Melbourne's incredible photographic culture that exists in and around the city. For people who don't know the the strength of that culture, how is it so strong and why? Mm. Well, Melbourne's really blessed with a number of institutions dedicated to photography. We had the Monash Gallery of Art, uh, which is Australia's home of photography. We had the Centre for Contemporary Photography in Fitzroy. There are incredible collections at the NGV, the State Library, Museums Victoria. And you have all these schools of photography. You had the first Masters in Photography in the whole Asia-Pacific region launched in Melbourne a few years ago not to mention the numerous practitioners, academics, curators that circle around the city. So anywhere else in the world, this would be celebrated. Um, and it just felt appropriate to bring the whole community together to have a moment that, um, that does just that and uh, shines an international spotlight on, on Melbourne as a, as a capital of photography. And what it's also doing is uh, the festival is shining a light on the artists by placing them in different locations. So, yes, there is work in galleries, mm -hmm. which you have to go to the gallery to see, but you can also accidentally encounter work uh, on the steps of Parliament in the that p weird little triangular park beside Parliament, <laughs> for example, on the sides of buildings... Uh, Talk to us about that aspect of the festival because that's something that I find particularly fascinating and, and welcoming, the idea that it is democratising uh, democratizing art by placing it in public spaces. We're really treating the city as a canvas, as a canvas for artists. Um, we are dedicated and focused to contemporary photography and looking at what's happening now, what's coming next. And for that, we commission a lot of new work that premieres at the festival. And a lot of that work is commissioned specifically for public spaces around the city both for iconic locations such as the Steps of Parliament, the front of the Town Hall along the South Bank Promenade, but also down laneways and kind of like um, less familiar sites. Um, and the idea is to create a festival of exploration. You're supposed to gather your mates, pick up a guide, look at the map and walk through the city and find these huge works on the sides of buildings and then dip down laneways and find more intimate works on light boxes or rock posters and then enter a gallery, step across that threshold into the white cube and immerse yourself further into, into an exhibition space. The notion of encouraging people to grab their friends and explore the city together is something that I'm sure is going to be enormously welcomed by the, the business community in the CBD as well. When the comedy festival was on, the city was activated mm -hmm. in a way it has not been for years. Is this a conscious part of your programming as well, the, the, a post-COVID response, as it were? Not that we're post-COVID, we're still living with it, but in deliberately seeking to to bring people back into the public domain after two years of being sequestered at home? 
Well, I have to say the the idea of activating the city was very much pre-COVID. It was there all along. It was the idea of photography exploding out of the galleries or off your iPhone and onto the streets, providing opportunities for artists to work at an urban scale, to present work at, you know, at, at a size they've never been able to conceive of before. So it was there from the beginning. Um, and um, it really is, um, you know, an experience to go around and explore these works. A few people told me that that wouldn't work here in Melbourne. People don't do that. People don't engage with a, a photography festival in, in that way. But it's been so heartening seeing groups of people, gangs of people going around, ticking things off on the, on the maps and, and discovering the work along the way. Now, you mentioned, for example, uh, the fact that there is work in light boxes, so the South Bank Promenade, which is a really busy part of the city normally. I don't know what it's like at the moment, um, but with people walking from, I don't know, the, the concert hall down towards the casino to catch a tram, for example, or finding somewhere to eat along there. So you've got the Birrarung light boxes positioned along there. We mentioned the Huxleys in an earlier kind of conversation in the show. They're also, uh, they have work showing at CCP. But these light boxes along there are presenting works and I understand thematically linked, they're works which, which engage with water in some way. Correct. So the whole festival is exploring the notion of being human, what it means to be alive today, what kind of connects us as a species, but also makes us unique and special as individuals. Uh, and there's several strands to this um, curatorially, but uh, for the light boxes along South Bank Promenade, we wanted to look at humans' relationship with water. And we do that through six new artist commissions presented on these bespoke light boxes that are huge. The largest one, I think, is four meters by three meters tall. They really tower over you. Um, and uh, we commissioned these with the city of Melbourne. And we felt it was really an appropriate site to, to be bringing the, these works. And especially at dusk, they really, they really glow. So we have six artists. Australian and international. We have the First Nations artist Naomi Hobson presenting new work from her Adolescent Wonderland series and Dean Cross who's created a, a work based on Polaroids exploring his relationship to country. We also have the Huxleys, Patrick Pound's playful found imagery of people diving into the water, some more successful than others um, and, um, and some international artists as well. So we have Martin Palacki who's a Hungarian artist based in uh, London who has a really playful um, uh, kind of abstract approach to how we interact with water. You can kind of like piece the clues together yourself when you see it. Um, and we also have a South African artist who's looking at post-apartheid beaches, how black bodies are reclaiming spaces that were previously prohibited to them. In terms of the international aspect, art obviously can travel when artists cannot. Uh, how has that been reflected in both the program and the participation of international artists this year? Well, it was important from the start that this was um, assertively international. We wanted to present the very best talent from Australia next to the world's very best photographers and artists. And anyone that browses the program will be able to see that, you know, alongside Cindy Sherman and Gillian Waring and Mohamed Barusa, you have, you know, incredible talent, both emerging and established in Australia. So our first festival was intended for uh, 2020. It was going to be photo 2020. Uh, we had to postpone at the very last minute and push back to 21. For that festival, Festival, 
pretty much all the international artists and curators on our international creators program of Osco were all going to be here. It was going to be this magical moment for the community to gather uh, because of the, you know, the state of the world over the last year. Uh, we weren't allowed, you know, we weren't able to plan for that. We didn't know if borders were open. Luckily, some of the artists have been able to come over. We had Jenny Lewis from London here for the, for the launch of the festival. And uh, we had the uh, Berlin-based artist Florian Hetz flying over for the final week and there'll be some programs with him. So, while only a few of the artists are, are coming, the, the programs really resonated internationally. Lots of the curators that I speak with in Europe can't believe the kind of caliber of artists that we pulled together for Photo 22. Um, and it's, it's already building a kind of significant international reputation. Now, you mentioned the theme earlier of being human which strikes me as such a, a resonant and significant theme on a number of levels. One is because clearly post, again, kind of as we emerge from, from COVID, we, are, we have been deprived of contact, of physical uh, connection, of touch, of hugs, all those things. People who live alone were kind of cut off from the world except kind of via Zoom or kind of, kind of socially distant walks in the park, for example. So reminding us of what it means to be human, what it means to be alive is so resonant. But also because the political world we live in, there's a war in Europe, uh, there are deep divisions in society. Again, being reminded of the things that we share in common, the things that connect us, what it means to be alive in the world today. Being human feels like a really resonant theme. There's been such huge societal shifts in the last few years. Um, it just felt appropriate to to really unpack the contemporary human condition. I mean, through throughout COVID, especially in Melbourne, everything that kind of had previously defined us was stripped away. Sort of going to the office, going to school going to the club we couldn't do any of these things so it felt like a really appropriate time that once you know looking at once that is removed from your every day what actually does define us um and you know wars are raging um you know there's activism around the city trying to be you know change the world for the better so all of these ideas kind of feed into the program and um anyone navigating the festival could either kind of we break down those different themes. We look at the self, what it means to identify as a, as a person. We look at society, what happens when people come together. Uh, we also look at our relationship with nature and also how history has defined who we are today. Um, I think most poignant for a lot of people is the mortality strand where we actually chart the whole like, life cycle from birth to death and in some cases the afterlife. In terms of some of the works uh, that in the the self strand for example talk to us about the u.s artist jess t duggan whose work is showing uh over in paran at paran square jess t duggan is uh an artist making absolutely beautiful work really focused on their queer communities in the u.s they've just published the uh, the book of the project that we're showing, Look at Me Like You Love Me, uh, which is such a poetic title. And that's been published by Mac, which is probably the most influential photo book publishers in the world. And we're delighted that they agreed to show these often very sort of intimate and um, poignant portraits uh, in such a public setting. Now, there's a range of... Uh, I guess, zones or precincts for people to explore in Melbourne. And that uh, includes around the Town Hall, around Parliament, the River, State Library, and in Fitzroy Collingwood. And 
as we've just heard, Paran, kind of elsewhere, other locations, but also uh, regional Victoria. You've connected regional Victoria uh, into the festival as well. Talk to us about that. Mm, it was so important for us that this was not just a metropolitan experience. So while there is definitely a concentration of, you know, both gallery exhibitions and outdoor programs in, you know, in the CBD and around central Melbourne, that does extend across metropolitan Melbourne and into regional Victoria. So there are exhibitions from... Um, Horsham uh, in the west, all the way to Albury Wondonga in the in the east. Uh, there's a, a beautiful suite of exhibitions at the Benella Art Gallery. The Oculi Collective have curated um, um, a extremely ambitious program there. A Tonga Thames uh, photographs from from her commission at Rising last year on display for the first time, and the film's also being presented as a nighttime projection on the outside of the building for the duration of the festival. I love the fact that yeah. People could go from Geelong up to uh, Albury, kind of Albury Wodonga, to see work as part of the festival. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole festival really is a pick and mix adventure. You can start at any point and find your way around. You can, if, um, you know, identify a precinct like the Parliament precinct to walk along Spring Street and see incredible work, um, or you can like just identify a particular gallery or exhibition or regional city to to visit and start your journey there. Something uh, that Ty Snaith mentioned much earlier in the program was uh, just how impressed she was with the fact that the festival has united the the disparate elements of the Melbourne art world. So uh, an institution like CCP, some of the smaller kind of artist-led spaces, some of the, the larger galleries and commercial galleries, it's... you've. How have you encouraged everybody to participate when uh, in such a sometimes fractious and competitive art world? Um, everyone shared the same vision. Everyone realised the importance of having an internationally significant photography biennial here in Melbourne and across the state. So it, you know, it was a series of conversations with curators, directors, artists uh, about the idea for this festival and everyone I spoke to came on board. They're it's almost like this desire to collaborate for, you know, decades, institutions feel like they've been very insular. And now there's this understanding that we can do a lot more through collaboration and partnership, which is, you know, the modus operandi of the whole festival. It's doing a huge amount through working, through, through bringing people together. Um, and that's both cultural institutions as well of all levels of, of, of government in this country, uh, different industry and, uh, and corporate partners as well. And also, as we say, something else that has been a challenge for institutions for many years is not only uh, kind of reaching new audiences, but just encouraging people to come through their doors. So again, as we said earlier, the idea that, yes, you can go into an institution to look at work, but this is a festival that takes art out onto the street, which will then hopefully encourage, once people have discovered it, uh, perhaps entirely accidentally and randomly, and they discover the festival is on, the fact that the the there are multiple kind of entry points mm. for people to not only discover the festival but to discover and celebrate the power of photography as an art and I think it's worth noting that there are 90 exhibitions across the festival and with the exception of Helmut Newton they're all free this is incredibly accessible for people to to go um, and explore with their families uh, with their children with their friends and we wanted to you know invite 
commercial galleries, REs, as well as the main state institutions to celebrate the full ecosystem of the art world, but also to encourage people to take that first step, perhaps, into a gallery that they that might not be part of their a part of their daily or uh, or weekly routine. For lots of people, commercial galleries, REs are, can be intimidating places, but by connecting up with this very kind of public and um, um, uh, sort of large visible festival program hopefully it will encourage more people to engage with the uh, art scene in Melbourne in this way. And in terms of uh, internationals again uh, you just mentioned Helmut Newton uh, Cindy Sherman another significant international artist also in the program. Absolutely. So they're both part of our Icon Strand, which is a new addition to the festival this year. Cindy Sherman celebrated our largest single image in the art world, in the, in the festival, uh, to celebrate her um, important role in the art world. So that is a uh, 20 meter long, 13 meter tall reproduction of one of her iconic untitled film stills on, uh, um, on the side of Fed Square overlooking Flinders. For more information about Photo 2022, which is running until the 22nd of May, jump online, photo.org.au. You can pick up a copy of the festival program in print, which will help you navigate the, the different precincts. And definitely get some friends together. Go on an art hunt. Discover artists. Discover work. Grab a bite to eat and then keep going and uh, just explore more and explore further. I've been chatting with the artistic director of Photo 2022, Elias Redstone. Elias, thank you so much for coming in and congratulations to you and all your team. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. I love the idea that for the last two years we've been holding on desperately to so much to try to kind of. I don't know, just get through the pandemic and now we can let go, we can breathe again, we're going out again, we're going to shows, we're going to exhibitions, we can celebrate with our friends and families and do stuff together. And one of the things you can do is go to the, the inaugural Southside Festival, which is running from the 6th to the 15th of May in and around the city of Frankston. I'm joined on the line by Freya McFarlane, who is the festival producer. Freya, I'm so conscious of the fact often on this program that I'm talking about things that are happening in the CBD or in the inner city. It's so nice to have a festival down in Frankston to talk about for a change. Hello Richard, thank you so much and yeah, it's a really valid point that's the main, one of the main reasons why Southside Festival um, has, has come into fruition, is, is bringing something really um, contemporary and uh, unique down to Frankston, things that you would normally, you don't need to go into the CBD to see, you can now see them in Frankston, it's exactly one of the main reasons why it's, it's been birthed. Now if we're going to be honest, Frankston has uh, has been... I don't know, there are some snobbish attitudes towards Frankston as a suburb that I see perpetrated mm-hmm. sometimes in the media. Is the festival also not only an opportunity to present work for people in that part of town, but also to uh, help present an alternative view of Frankston to the broader Melbourne community? Absolutely, and I think that that's a quite a, you know, it, it definitely still exists, but it's quite an antiquated view of the area, which has really changed a lot over the last sort of decade or even the last 20 years. A lot of young families um, have, have moved down here from the, the city because they, they can afford a house down here. Um, so it's really developed as a, as a new a new community of young families, and um, yeah, people who did used to live more, more urban have, have 
have moved down here. Um, it's, it's more than a pretty beach and it's more than those um, sort of negative viewpoints, that's for sure. And the festival is definitely all about that and, um, and changing the focus of what people think about when they think about Frankston and the, the municipality around it, for sure. And bringing, I guess, artists from the local area together with artists from elsewhere, even elsewhere in Australia. I'm thinking the the, the Brisbane company uh-huh. Circa, for example, uh, and that yep. cross fertilisation that happens when artists from different places come together, see one another's work, see one another's uh-huh. ideas. Absolutely. I find that cross-pollination absolutely crucial in a festival, um, bringing things from, you know, that exactly as you said, things that are local, things that are from across the state, things that are from interstate, things that are from, you know, other, other states around the country. Uh, you know, we have Mandy Lights, who is doing our, uh, our Kia tractor, and, you know, they sort of, well, they're global, they go everywhere, but, um, you know, they're predominantly based up in New South Wales, so they're down doing um, a world premiere of their of a light show called Frankston Generator, made specifically for Frankston's uh, first Southside Festival. So that's pretty exciting. But, yeah, you're completely right. Having all of these different things happening at once it brings not only the audience together, but artists as well, which to me is, is um, just as valuable for those connections to be made through a festival as well. And it's also a festival which is acknowledging, I guess, the breadth and depth of contemporary arts practice. So, yes, you've got uh, Peep Show by Circa, one of the, uh-huh. the most internationally in-demand circus companies uh, from <laughs> Brisbane. But then balancing that, you've got drag shows, for example, as well, <laughs> because culture doesn't fit neatly in a box, does it? it it's kind of like this Agreed. diverse, bubbling <laughs> range of things. And I love the fact that 20... Again, we were talking about preconceptions uh, a moment ago and you were saying that uh, Frankston has changed over, over a 20-year period. And so of our views of art, the idea of high uh-huh. art versus low art, I think is being... Has, well, has been largely eroded away. Yes, there are still some outliers and clinging on to those kind of views. But the <laughs> fact that art exists on a spectrum rather than kind of at high and low ends, at everything in between... I could not agree with you more, and I think that that's something that, you're right, the perception of that has has sort of gradually been changing, but, you know, art art is subjective. Art is always being subjective. So it's always irked me that there's been that sort of more highbrow, lowbrow kind of look at at things. Um, I I love, uh, you know, sort of dirty, grungy art as much as I like all the highbrow stuff. So, you know, I, I think that there's a place for everything, and when you bring them all together and mush them all up into a big bubbling cauldron, it's just more fun. You know, there's, there's different complexities to the program. There's peaks and troughs and there's different things that you can see. And when they all get mixed together, it makes for a much more enjoyable experience because it's already so diverse. Now, the festival is happening on uh, uh, Bunurong country. How are the first peoples Correct. of the area reflected in the program? Great question. Yes, yeah, so obviously one of our... Um, we had an EOI process that had um, the artist commissions, and one of the, uh, the groups that received that was the Murundaya Yipenga Dance Troupe, um, which is led by Amos Roach, um, and they are doing a beautiful free-to-the-public workshop uh, on the Bunurong land around the foreshore, um, and that is like a, a beautiful acknowledgement um, to the country that we are on um, and that's happening on Saturday, down at the foreshore at 2 o'clock. So people can get together, dance on the beach, uh, and, mm-hmm. and learn about culture at the same time. 
Absolutely. So the dancers are seasonal. It's all based because we're in autumn now. So the dance workshops are based on, on the seasonality. So we've got their autumn show, which is absolutely amazing. So, yeah, it's, it's, I would say that it's, it's a fun, fun dance education all at once. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess kind of moving on from that, another of the works that has kind of jumped out of the program at me is Reckoning, which is, mm-hmm. I guess, connecting what uh, local First Nations cultures with uh, yep. people and culture from Aotearoa New Zealand. Absolutely. So that's being done by Beat Entertainment, uh, which is led by Sam Gaskin. And uh, it's absolutely incredible, this, this show. I had the pleasure of seeing it during lockdown in a video, like a filmed format, and it was just absolutely stunning. So Sam Gaskin and the Marindas have come together to create this absolutely insanely beautiful emotional journey. Um, You know, it's about reclaiming power, reconnecting, rediscovering, and really getting in touch with with forgotten pasts. Um, And as you mentioned, it's a cross-cultural, multi-art form performance, so it's usually you know, both Indigenous cultures in this really beautiful, seamless, emotional way. It's it's absolutely stunning. I can't, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I think one of my favourite quotes was by they, um, was they um, had their one of their songs come out and it was featured in Rolling Stones and uh, it was delights every one of the senses for those lucky enough to witness it. Ah. So, now, if Rolling Stones says it, you know. <laughs> Something else that I think will delight the senses is the music program as part of the inaugural <laughs> Southside Festival. And again, if we're talking about the the diversity uh, and the range and breadth of what's possible to put into a festival program, the <laughs> fact that yes, you've got you've got nights in a piano bar, you've got showcases <laughs> of local music, but you've also got an Australian Welsh male choir that was originally formed in Frankston <laughs> yep. in 1974. I know, right? How cool is that? And they have been such a delight to work with. And that's the other thing that I, another thing that I find sometimes gets missed is, or has a preconception is that community engagement is also seen sometimes as lowbrow. And I just do not buy into that. So the community engagement work that we have done with groups like this is just as important to me and just as valid to the festival as all of the, the you know, the big, the bigger, flashier things that are coming through as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure working with the local organisations like the Welsh Choir, like Frankston High, um, and really uh, getting on board with things that people within the community are doing and how they want to be a part of the festival. I'm, I'm not big on curating what goes into a festival. I want to, I'm answerable to the artists that want to be involved and the audience who wants to come and see it. So it's been really great developing all of these relationships with local organisations as well as the local artists. Now, Freya, I'm aware that because of the impact of COVID, some people are still perhaps, uh, and understandably, I think, a little anxious about going in going to the theatre or going to sit in a crowded bar to listen to a, to an artist. So there's the opportunity, again, through the music program to sit outdoors and see work, uh, being uh, kind of with musicians uh-huh. performing on the back of a ute. <laughs> yes, Femme Belly's bandwagon. It's so much fun. And, yeah, you're totally right. This was another... Um, great sort of aspect that came in via our commissions program um, and it was just and it was one of the reasons that we were so, was so successful it was just like this is this amazing thing that can turn up outdoors it's completely self-sufficient and deliver amazing outdoor concerts and which you're completely correct 
people are still very much wary of COVID and going into theatres and what it, it affects ticket sales, it affects all sorts of things. So being able to provide outdoor entertainment was also really top of the list of priorities because when we were programming this last year, we had no idea where we'd be at come May. So trying to trying to make as, as many things as accessible as possible, even if there was still going to be restrictions in place. And the bandwagon was a really big part of that. You're also using the local uh, kind of uh, infrastructure and arts ecology as well. So the visual arts program, uh, there's uh, the the cube space at Frankston Arts Centre is being mm-hmm. used. McClellan Gallery is participating in the program as well. Talk to us a bit yep. about the visual arts program for the festival. The visual arts program has been really exciting, and that's been curated by uh, Mila Dakovic, who actually who does a lot of the curating for the Frankston Art Centre and for Cube. So I was really led by her uh, because she knew a lot of the local artists as well, and obviously worked really closely with McClellan Gallery as to how what they wanted to present. Um, but we've also placed some of our programming out at McClelland as well. So some of Scratch Arts shows, their children's shows, are happening out there over the over this weekend as well. So we and one of the bandwagon shows. So again, it was that cross pollination of bringing together different locations with different artists and showcasing all of these different things in different spaces and and really sort of saying, right, we can do multiple things all over the place and they can work together harmoniously. The inaugural Southside Festival, as we said, is running from the 6th to the 15th of May in and around the city of Frankston. Details at www.southsidefestival.com.au. Freya, we know this is the first festival. What are the plans for next year? <laughs> Funny you should say that because I have already opened up. We, we do two $25,000 commissions for a locally grown uh, event, series event, and also a large-scale community event. So those EOIs are open right now to be a part of the 2023 calendar. So head to the website. All of the information's on there as to how you can get involved. Um, and then we open up further um, 5K artist EOIs for commissions later in the year as well. So join up to our, our, our little e-newsletter so that you get prompted as to when all of these opportunities um, open up. <laughs> it's a reminder that, yes, the festival is about to happen, but festival programming does yes. not stop. It's kind of like, right, what's next year? No. <laughs> Jump online, www.southsidefestival. It's very, very true. It is. It's kind of like that cyclic nature. Like... Um, Earlier in the show, as I said, that I I had Hannah and Gideon from Rising in, and they were saying, oh, we're already kind of, we're so focused on 2023 now, I hope we don't accidentally let anything slip. Well, they didn't say that. I implied they (laughs) might, but they didn't. But yeah, festival cycles don't stop. But if you're a member of the public... They do not. The the festival this year, 6th to the 15th of May, www.southsidefestival.com.au. Freya McFarlane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 